All right, Philippians chapter number 4, verse number 10, Paul says this, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then this famous verse that we all have read, that we all have memorized, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So over the past couple weeks, we have explored, uh, and well, last week in particular, we, we covered quite a bit of ground, but we have explored these remaining three thoughts that are in this final section of the book of Philippians. And uh, Paul, what he's doing here is he's making a practical application of the doctrinal truth that he has laid the foundation of earlier in the book. Uh, he begins in the first uh, chapter and a half by talking about his own triumphant experiences, uh, what he has been through, what he has known God uh, through, and, and uh, what he has seen God do in his life personally. And then he moves beyond that, and he talks about three tremendous examples. He talks about Christ as an example in suffering. He talks about uh, Timothy as an example in service. And uh, he talks about uh, Epaphroditus as an example in, in suffering. Christ as an example in sacrifice. Uh, Timothy is an example in service and Epaphroditus as an example in, uh, in, in suffering. And then he moves on to his typical exhortations. Uh, in other words, he challenges them to take this doctrine, to apply it in their lives, and to see God transform them through that. Uh, and that in and of itself is divided into three different categories. Uh, and they're, they're defined this way. He says in chapter number 3, the first 21 verses, that you cannot defraud a man who knows the power of proper theology. Uh, what we believe about the Lord uh, deeply informs how we live our lives and how we are equipped to be able to overcome the attacks of Satan. And then in chapter number 4, the first nine verses, he uh, puts forth this, uh, this premise that you cannot defile a man who knows the power of positive thinking. Uh, that phrase, positive thinking, has been co-opted and transformed by psychology preachers uh, to be something that is divorced from the reality of who Christ is and instead is akin to sort of Eastern mysticism and things of that sort. Uh, but Paul, he wrestles that terminology back to the Bible believer. And he shows us that, in fact, it is vital, it is important that we fill our minds with the proper thoughts. And those thoughts are what? Those thoughts are of Christ. They are not of us, uh, you know, actualizing and visualizing and realizing our potential and a bunch of hogwash like that. No, instead it's fixing our mind on Christ, who He is, and allowing Him to reign in our thoughts, in our minds, bringing every thought uh, into obedience unto Jesus Christ and casting down strongholds. Well, tonight, in closing this study, I want us to consider this premise, this thought, this theme and principle that Paul sets forth. And that is that you cannot defeat a man who knows the power of perpetual thanksgiving. It's fascinating that we should uh, wrap this study up in the month of November. I, I'll admit to you, I didn't give as much forethought to this as evidently the Holy Spirit did uh, in ordering our steps and our path. But it's fitting that we should close out this study on the book of Philippians here in the month of November uh, with our thoughts fixed on the idea of thanksgiving, gratitude, and the power of it. 
Uh, Paul, in writing the letter to the church at Philippi, he had a few different things that he wanted to do. He wanted to exhort them about proper theology and teach them some things about Jesus Christ. Uh, He, of course, wanted to let them know that he loved them, that he was praying for them, and that they were ever-present on his heart and mind. He wanted to help uh, try to, to sort of mediate this discord, this conflict between these two women at the church at Philippi and, and resolve this spat that they were having. But one of the things that he was doing as well is he wanted to express his personal gratitude to this body of believers for a gift that they had sent by the hands of Epaphroditus in order to minister to his needs in prison. Uh, Paul, of course, being in prison at Rome, it was not like it is today. Prisoners today are essentially a ward of the state. Uh, and uh, listen, I, I don't by any means envy anyone that is incarcerated. Uh, but it is a fact that depending on where they're incarcerated at, there are some places undoubtedly where people live a very hard life behind bars in this country. And then there are some places where people go for white-collar crimes where they're probably eating better and living better than you and I could ever hope to do so. And they're doing all of that on the taxpayer dime. Amen. They're doing that and we're paying for it. In Paul's day, this was not the case. Uh, in Paul's day, it was pretty much a prisoner's responsibility to meet his own needs. Uh, if he didn't have people that loved him taking care of him, he could very realistically starve to death uh, while under the custody and jurisdiction of the state. And so evidently the church at Philippi had sent a gift to him uh, by the hands of Epaphroditus. And one of the things he wants to do is let them know how much it means to him that they love him, that they care about him, and that they had sent to meet his needs. So the two basic thoughts we want to look at tonight is a life of thanksgiving, a life of gratitude, a life of graciousness and gratefulness, both to the Lord and to those that God is using in our life. And the two thoughts that he uh, communicates to us, first is the experience connected with this kind of life. Uh, What does it mean to be a thankful person? What will you experience in your life if you're living a life of gratitude? I will tell you this, that, and this I think is in many ways the difference between the psychology preachers and the Bible perspective on the idea of positive thinking and gratitude. Uh, The prosperity preacher and the psychology preacher would claim that we can materialize certain things in life through a spirit and attitude of gratitude. Uh, through uh, an attitude of, of uh, positive thinking. And that is not at all what Paul is setting forth. In fact, what Paul is claiming is this. Not that he transforms his circumstances through means of positive thinking and faith and gratitude, but rather that God is through his circumstances transforming him through an attitude of gratitude and of thankfulness and of positive thinking. In other words, Paul is not saying, you know, I'm going to name and claim all of these blessings in life and I'm going to wrestle God into being the dispensary of my temporal prosperity. Rather, what Paul is saying is that my circumstances being dealt out to me and dictated by providence, I'm going to choose to transcend what I'm experiencing and allow God to transform me through the affliction and suffering uh, that I may be experiencing, as well as through the love and generosity and gratitude of other believers, I'm going to see the hand of God in that, and I'm going to allow God to enrich my spiritual life through what I am going through. So he talks about the experience connected 
with this kind of life. And then he talks about the exercises connected with this kind of life. What is it going to produce in us? So firstly, I want you to notice in verse number 10 that Paul teaches us something about knowing how to wait on the Lord. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. So first off, he notes the the final coming of the Philippians' gift. Now, Paul here at Rome was something around 100 miles away from the church at at, at Philippi. Uh, It was not an easy thing to get a gift, a love offering, to the Apostle Paul. Uh, And he notes that the Philippians, and we'll say a word about this here in a moment, that they had a desire to minister to his needs, but it was not an easy thing to do. Not only because the great distance and the peril that was associated simply with traveling, even on Rome's well-developed road systems, it was no light thing to set out on a journey from Philippi to Rome. But also in the fact that they were undertaking great, uh, you know, attention to themselves by coming and visiting a man like Paul in Rome. Someone that Nero was, was deeply suspicious of and deeply resentful of. They were making themselves a target of the state. By coming and visiting Paul in Rome. They had evidently for a long time been talking about wanting to do something for him. And imagine the Apostle Paul living in, in, uh, I think we could say, relative poverty, imprisoned in Rome, waiting on God to send someone his way to meet his need in his life. Paul had no doubt whatsoever that God would meet his need. Uh, But here in this particular situation, imagine how hard it must have been for him to wait. How often have we had a need in our life and we have committed to let the Lord fill that need? And then comes the long waiting period when we're waiting to see how God is going to meet that need. I'll tell you, there have been times, and you think about Elijah whenever the drought sets in in the Old Testament, and uh, he has to wait on the Lord. When you read that, that chapter, First Kings chapter 17, or Second Kings chapter 17, uh, it, it seems as though... There is failure after failure after failure on God's part. God commands a drought and then tells Elijah to go and wait by the brook Cherith and uh, that the ravens would feed him. And every day, no doubt, he woke up and waited on those birds, to uh, that flock of birds to sweep through and, and drop meat for Elijah to eat. And he was drinking out of the brook. And it seems like he finally gets settled in. It seems like he finally gets comfortable with the mode and method of God's provision. And then all of a sudden... The birds quit coming, and the brook dries up. And now, how is God going to meet his need? God commands him to go and to find a widow woman in Zarephath that she is going to sustain his needs. And no doubt, Elijah had in his his thought this idea of this wealthy widow woman that has died and been left the estate of her illustrious husband that is just uh, flush with with resources and and provision. and, And that's why God has sort of put these two individuals together is because she has all this money and she can't spend it. And here's Elijah and he has all this great need and no way to meet it. And he walks up to the city of Zarephath and he sees a little old woman gathering sticks out uh, by the side of the, the highway there. And he probably thought to himself when he saw her, poor old soul, she looks like she's barely able to survive. Uh, maybe he whispered a prayer under his breath, Lord, bless this little woman here, meet her needs as I'm traveling through this area, going to the rich widow that's going to take care of me. How pitiful of a circumstance she has. Then all of a sudden God's voice comes back and says, <clears throat> um, Elijah, that's the widow woman that's going to sustain you. 
He walks up to this woman and says, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm gathering a couple sticks just to build a fire and fix one last meal before me and my son starve to death because we have nothing left to eat. Looks like God has failed again. But through miraculous means, God uh, causes that cruise of oil and that barrel of meal to be bottomless and meets both the needs of that widow woman and the needs of Elijah. And it seems as though he's finally gotten comfortable again with the mode and method of God's provision in his life. And then one day, tragedy strikes, and that son of that widow woman dies. And she becomes sort of hostile and accusatory towards Elijah, and says, you know, why, why, did you, why did God bring you here? And why is God bringing this sorrow upon me? I've done nothing but obey God. And now here's Elijah, and here's a widow woman that has a, a cruise of oil and a barrel of meal that are bottomless. His needs are met indefinitely. The only thing that could derail this is if somebody kicked him out of that house. And now all of a sudden, here is this widow woman accusing him of being sort of the, uh, you know, the, the, the storm bringer in her life, of being the albatross that has brought this misfortune to her. But there again, God miraculously shows up and meets that need. I'm saying this, that sometimes the hardest part is the waiting. And the seeing, how is God going to meet this need? Paul had spent a long amount of time waiting in poverty, waiting to see God meet his need. And now he says, Epaphroditus comes walking into the jailhouse with a love offering under his arm and says, Paul, here I am. We've been thinking about you the whole time, been praying for you the whole time. Communication was not easy at that time. Here in a few moments, and we'll emphasize it when we get there, but Paul talks about how none of the churches were caring for him. They weren't meeting his needs. And he had no way to expect or to, to, to know or to, to anticipate that anyone was going to come walking through the door. Imagine what a blessing it must have been when Epaphroditus walks through the door with that love offering. And Paul uses the term flourish. It means to blossom. means to bloom. It means for life to breathe again. What a refreshment it was for him. Instead of, instead of muttering under his breath about all the churches that weren't helping him, this church that chose to help him became a source, a breath of fresh air, a source of new life. And he says, now it's flourishing for me and God is using this in my life. One of the things you'll experience when you are grateful to God and when you're looking to God for help is that breath of fresh air when God dovetails perfectly your need and another person's generosity and meets that need in your life. Not only the final coming of the Philippians gift, but also the faithful character of it. He said you were careful. And again, I'd remind you that that word careful in your Bible does not mean cautious, but rather it means full of care. He had told them earlier to be careful for nothing, but by everything uh, with prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God in verse number six. Now he says you did have care, but the care that you had wasn't anxiety but rather it was attention to detail and it was investment in someone else. And now he's lauding their carefulness. And he says, you desired to minister in my life, but you lacked opportunity. You were waiting for the right time, for the right moment, and for God to do it in just the right way. In other words, he acknowledges that, listen, sometimes there's folks that want to help that can't help. And God takes note of, we'll say this here in, in, in a few moments. Well, let's go ahead and, and, and look at it. Look at verse number 11 with me. Look what he says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. The word want that is used here is interesting because the connection undoubtedly it would have had in Paul's mind. It's only found one other time in your Bible. And it is uh, in the book of Mark, whenever the Lord Jesus is sitting beside the treasury of the temple and he's watching all these people come and casting great and large gifts. He sees a little widow woman shuffle up to the treasury. 
and take two mites out of a robe and cast them in. And the Lord saw something that no one else could see. Everyone could see the prosperity of the people giving large gifts. But only the Lord could see the poverty of the woman giving the small gift. In other words, other people were giving that they might be seen, that they might be bragged on. But God saw what they couldn't see. God saw those full coffers that the gifts that these men were giving were barely putting a dent in. He also saw this little widow woman that though she was giving two mites, which is about as... The only thing that would have been less than two mites would have been one mite. I mean, she was giving about as little as a person could give, but God saw her poverty. And from that poverty, he saw this gift was abounding in liberality and in richness of the Lord. Because God does not measure our giving by our prosperity, but by our poverty. And God does not measure a gift by the sum of it, but by the sacrifice of it. Paul uses this word, want, here. And I think that probably when he thought about the Philippian believers... He thought about this little widow woman. That's probably what brought the usage of that word and that thought and that story to his mind was because he saw a group of people that earnestly desired to give, but did not have the opportunity to do so until God afforded it to them. And he acknowledges that there's people that wish they could do more, but cannot do more. There's people that would love to be those folks with with limitless bank accounts and fat pocketbooks and people that would run out of ink before they'd run out of zeros that they could write on the check they'd give to the Lord. There are people like that, but there's people that are not like that. And they desire to give to the Lord. And they wish they were that type of person. Listen, we ought not despair when we give sacrificially unto the Lord. God takes note of it. And so Paul acknowledged the, the final coming of the Philippians' gift and the faithful character of it. He, he points to knowing how to wait. It's hard to wait on God. But he also points to this thought, knowing how to want. A life of gratitude often is coupled with a life of want. Very often, and you know this to be true, people that grow up with a silver spoon in their mouth are very often the least grateful people walking the earth. It's often the people that know what it is to desire and to want and to experience lack in their life that know what true gratitude is. Because they know what it's like to have God meet a need that was a need that was deeply felt. Notice first off what Paul denied. And I love this because this is a beautiful exercise in how to have a grateful heart. By using this word want, again, I think probably the, the faithful character of the Philippians had brought to his mind the gift that this widow woman gave in the treasury. But him using that word, he says, not that I speak in respect of want, of deep poverty. And undoubtedly, he's speaking about this widow woman. I think what he's saying is this. I think he's saying, I may not have much, but I've got more than she had. In other words, he was saying he was not as poor as her. And he's saying, I'm not complaining about my circumstances. I love this. Paul found someone in worse shape than him. To induce thankfulness in his heart. How often do we need to do this? When we magnify our problems, it produces in us an attitude of ungratefulness. But when we take a moment and magnify the problems of others, it will induce a thankful heart in us. Hey, listen, I hate to say it this way, but no matter what we're going through, there's probably someone going through worse. And Paul says, despite my deep poverty... I am not in as bad a shape as that widow woman was. And if she could give with gratitude in her heart, then surely I can give the praise of my lips unto the Lord in gratitude of my heart. 
Notice what he denied, but then notice what he declared. Look at verse number 11. We get into some deep, deep truth here. Uh, he, he points to basically two things. One, he mentions the serenity of contentment. Contentment is this. Contentment is being satisfied with what God has given you. It does not mean not desiring more. I don't know of a person walking this earth that doesn't wish they had more money in their pocket, doesn't wish they had a nicer car to drive or better clothes to wear. And God does not begrudge us those desires. But there are a lot of things in my life that I don't that, that I want that I don't have. But I believe I can say genuinely, sincerely that I'm satisfied. I don't go to bed at night with my thoughts haunted and plagued by those things. I, I don't find the lack of those things in my life to be a derailing distraction that keeps me from having a right spirit towards God or towards others that keeps me from being able to serve the Lord. I'm satisfied. Not that there aren't things that I long for and things that I desire, but I am satisfied with what God has done in my life and is doing in my life and has given me in my life. Contentment is being satisfied with what God has given you, even when it's not easy, even when it's uh, not pleasurable, but choosing to say I'm going to be happy with what God is doing in my life. I'm not going to grumble and complain against the Lord. I'm going to choose to be satisfied. Satisfaction, by the way, is a matter of choice. It is a matter of choice. There are people walking around on this earth that have so much money they don't even know how to spend it. There's, uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but the billionaire's commitment. It's modeled after what uh, John D. Rockefeller did. At the end of John D. Rockefeller's life, uh, he, he, and it actually wasn't born out of a great, deep, abiding sense of philanthropy necessarily. John D. Rockefeller was sick, and he was told he was going to die. And he said that he would give up to the half of his fortune to anybody that could add a year to his life. And no one took him up on the offer. Because <laughs> only the greatest physician... Uh, is the one that decides when we live, when we die. And uh, so John D. Rockefeller, along with Andrew Carnegie and uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, these men got together and they, as they came to grips with their own mortality, they came to realize that what they had could not do them any good. It couldn't add a year to Rockefeller's life. So they committed that they would, would try to spend everything that they could uh, before they died. And even to this day, there are billionaires that make the pledge that they want to try to die penniless, to spend everything that they have to try to enrich and and better other people. Now, I'm not trying to be cynical about that. But do you know why that is? They have achieved all this great wealth, and they're still not satisfied. They're still not satisfied. There are people, and we hear about it every so often, every few years it happens, and it's tragic when it does. The name that's in my mind is Robin Williams, a famous comedian and actor who took his own life tragically a few years ago. You see these people that reach the pinnacle of success and power and prosperity, and they find it to be a hollow and lonely place. They thought when they got to the next level, that would satisfy them. Paul has learned the secret to satisfaction, and he's going to share it with us. Notice, first off, the apprehension of the lesson he has sought to teach others. He says in verse 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. So he's not telling you to do something that he is not doing himself. He had written to young Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. And he himself, even in the midst of great poverty and imprisonment, he is practicing this. He says this, Not that I don't want to be out of jail. Not that I don't wish that I could do other things. But I'm not going to complain against the Lord for where I'm at. I'm going to be content. I'm going to be satisfied. 
notice the application of this lesson. He says, I know both. And he's going to give three different examples of these various things. And he really, in some ways, depending on how you want to compartmentalize it, it could even be more. But he says, I have learned three things. I've learned to be content, number one, no matter why. He says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. The word abased means a dry place. has the idea of a river running low. And the word abound means to overflow. So in other words, Paul says, I know how to run low and I know how to overflow. I know how to do both of those things. I know how to be satisfied with God no matter why I'm going through what I'm going through. Even if I can't understand or unriddle what God is doing in my life. Listen, we all know what it is to be abased. We all know what it is in some respect, be it financially, be it emotionally, be it uh, as far as relationships. We all know, we've all been in those places where we have abounded and where we have been abased. The question is not if we know what it is. The question is if we know how to do it. Can we do it with the right attitude, with the right spirit? Notice not only he says no matter why I'm going through what I'm going through, I'm going to be content. But he says no matter where. He says everywhere. Everywhere. Now, that might be easy for me or you to say, living in God's country here in East Tennessee, why that we're, we're, we're able to go and do whatever we want to do, at least to some degree. But Paul's sitting in a jailhouse. He's literally imprisoned in Rome. And he says, even here I've learned to be content. And then he says no matter what. He says, everywhere and in all things. In all things. Again, this is written by the pen of a man that's suffering. Not a man that is succeeding and flourishing in life. This is a man that other people are looking at and, and, and casting him as a failure. Paul says, I'm content here. I'm content here. Notice what he says. I love this language. He says, everywhere and in all things I am instructed. The word instructed is deeply connected with the idea of being initiated into something. Now, that's fascinating language when you consider that in Paul's day, and particularly for the church at Philippi, that part of the world, Greece and Rome, were rife with what we would call the ancient mystery religions, where everything was very uh, symbolic and ceremonial, and there was this idea that, it, that, that these various battling religions, each of them had their own mysterious secrets that you had to be inducted into, and some of that garbage still even exists today. Paul says, I've been initiated into a life of contentment. He says, I've been let in on the secret of what it means to be satisfied with God. He says, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, I, I don't have time, I really don't. But if I could, I'd spend a lot of time talking about this because I don't think he's saying I'm instructed both to be full or to be hungry, both to abound or to suffer need. He says, and. In other words, Paul says, I am both of these things simultaneously. You know what he is recognizing? He's recognizing the difference between temporal food and eternal food, between temporal bounty and eternal bounty. He's recognizing that our life is dictated not by our temporal circumstances, but rather by our spiritual position standing in richness in Christ Jesus. And he is saying, I think this, I know that I'm sitting here hungry in a Roman prison. I know that I'm sitting here and I'd love to be sitting around your dinner table eating to my fill. But instead, I'm sitting here hungry. But he says at the same time, I'm full spiritually. 
And God has taught me how to be both of those things at the same time. How to, of course, reckon with my temporal circumstances, but to not allow those to master and dominate me. Instead, to walk in the spirit and power and reality of my spiritual condition. He says both to abound and to suffer need. Of course he was suffering need. He just got through thanking them for meeting some of his needs. In other words, there's a whole brand of Christianity today that is obsessed with this idea of pretending life is not what it is. That's what the prosperity, the faith word movement, the name it and claim it movement is all about. Is ignoring your current circumstances and instead trying to verbalize and actualize and visualize and realize things that are not reality. Very often these movements, they prey upon impoverished people while their leaders are laid up in lavish circumstances. And it's nothing more than a pyramid scheme. It's nothing more than, than just, uh, it's the pillaging of good-natured but oftentimes misguided or ignorant people. Paul says, that's not what I'm preaching. That's not what I'm setting forth. He says, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not writing this from a palace. I'm writing it from a prison. And he's not denying the real temporal suffering he's experiencing. But rather he's saying, just as he was talking about satisfaction and contentment, I choose to be content. I choose to be satisfied. Not because, because I'm unaware of my poverty. Not because I'm unaware of my need. But because I have chosen to fix my gaze on Christ. And all that he's done for me and all that I have in him. It's in that context that this famous verse is pinned down. And this is the secret of contentment. He says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus, through Christ, which strengtheneth me. <laughs> it's fascinating because the same, same verbiage, same language is used in verse 7 when he says, The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying this, I have learned that in Christ I have everything I need and the potential for anything I could want. Therefore, if there's want in my life, it is because it must be present there in order for my spiritual need to be met. Has it ever dawned on you that sometimes getting what you want could rob you of what you need? Has it ever dawned on you that sometimes you have deeper needs than your wants? There, there are times, let me pin it and I want to hear it. I do, I really do. Uh, but I, since I'm recording, I don't, I don't want to. But has it ever dawned on us that there could be in, things in our life that if we got what we wanted, if we got what we're praying for, it would rob us of God meeting a deep need, a spiritual need that we have in our life. Paul says, I have learned that in who Christ is, in his nature, in his love for me, in what he has already demonstrated of his both ability and willingness to meet every both need and want that I have, that if there's wants in my life, they must stem from the fact that there is a greater need than there is want. And that God is meeting my needs, even at the expense sometimes of my wants. All right, look with me at verse number 14. We'll read a little bit here. We'll read verse 14 down to verse 20, cover a little ground. Paul says, verse number 14, Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also 
that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. He says, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's talked about the experience connected with this kind of life. Paul says, peace reigns in my soul. Contentment is my governing principle. Satisfaction is my state of mind. Then he talks about the exercises connected with this kind of life. Very often it involves personal needs. Personal needs. I said a moment ago that often a grateful heart cannot flourish and grow in a life that never experiences needs. And Paul acknowledges that he has needs in his life. He's not blind to those things. Notice the explanation in verses 14 through 16. He speaks first off, he gives the reason for his past financial needs. He said, notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. He points that whenever he left Macedonia, and this would have been the time in Paul's life, early in the ministry, when, when the ministry was at first flourishing and he was uh, giving, you know, he, he was planting churches everywhere and churches were in love and in gratitude meeting his needs. Then all of a sudden he gets to Philippi and he gets to Macedonia. And all of a sudden he meets a resistance that he had not met before. He sees great progress and great success. He plants the first European church uh, there at Philippi. And, uh, but very soon he's thrown in prison, as we're all familiar with there at Philippi. He's cast out of prison. And he runs into some bumps in the road. And the churches, the fledgling churches that he had planted, were not meeting his needs uh, the way that he needed them met. And this would have been the time in Paul's life when we're told that Paul uh, began to, to work as a tent maker. In these early days of ministry, Paul had a couple of options. He could have begged those churches, but he could not bring himself to do that. He could have, uh, you know, turned back and quit on ministry and went back to more financially fruitful grounds. Uh, He could have just began to live and not preach the gospel wherever he was at. But instead, Paul said, if I have to, I'll take up my tent maker's hammer and and, and needle and, and I'll work and I'll meet my needs. And so Paul did both for a short while. But... Uh, pretty soon, the needs that he had of both himself and those that were with him, because Paul didn't just provide for himself, he provided also for his laborers, began to be too much. And the churches that were there were not, were not meeting his needs. They were not, it should have been the Antioch in Syria, it should have been the church uh, that supported him. They were the church that he was sent out of, but they sent him away and they soon forgot about him. Uh, let me just pause here and say this it ought to, it ought to burden our hearts. To keep our missionaries on our heart and mind. Very often there's a lot of love and there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of support when they're here on the deputation trail and they're meeting all these people and making all these connections. Uh, but very often they get to the field and, and people forget about them. 
Often when they get to the field, churches start making excuses. They're late with their support or, or all of a sudden. And, and listen, churches suffer too. They, sometimes they lose a pastor. They go through a downtime. Tides drop. I'm not saying that people do it out of meanness or out of ill will or, or out of you know, cruelty. But it's just the circumstances of life that very often missionaries hit the field and their support doesn't increase. It drops. Uh, there's very often been times when we have chose to begin our support of a missionary or increase our support. We've had missionaries, and this is a typical rule at Walridge, that if a missionary is on deputation, we don't support them quite as much as we do when they hit the field. It's not because we don't want to support them when they're on deputation, but it's because we know that when they do get to the field, often they need a boost in support. Because they get there, it's more expensive than they realize. They get there and other churches drop them, and now they're stuck there. And so the Apostle Paul, he had experienced that same thing. He said, and he talks about the relief of his present financial need, he said there was a lacking concern of the churches. said that, that, uh, that no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but she only. I love the way he says that, communicated. They quit returning our phone calls. <laughs> and all of a sudden, these churches that wanted to hear from us, now all of a sudden, they had no concern. But he says, through that season in my life and through this present season, the church at Philippi had been an ever-present support. He says, for even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Well, that's fascinating. Because, you know, when you think about the church at Thessalonica, and Paul talked about this church, said that they, they talked about the warmness with which they received the truth of the Word of God. He said that they received it not as the words of men, but as it was in truth, the word of God, that that it was effectual in them that believed. And he talks about the rich uh, love affair that the church at Thessalonica had with the word of God, that they were just obsessed and consumed with the word of God. And yet while he was there, the church at Philippi is having to foot the bill. It, It ought to remind us of a few things. One, it ought to remind us of the investment that other people are making in our church life for us to be able to be enriched in the Word of God. And I think about this particularly as it relates to both missionaries and evangelists. People have this concept of evangelists like they're riding around, eating steak dinners every night and living it up in hotel rooms. And the fact is, I've talked to a lot of evangelists, well-known evangelists, well-used evangelists that spend, you know, 50, 45, 50 weeks a year on the road. And uh, I had one evangelist in particular, I'd never share his name just out of discretion, but he said that he's on the road upwards of 45 weeks out of the year, and he said probably 30 of those weeks it costs him money to be on the road. It costs him money. By the time he pays his gas, by the time he, he feeds himself, by the time he feeds his family that travels with him, that it costs him money. Paul was on the road, and it was costing him money. Had it not been for the church at Philippi taking good care of him, He would have gone broke trying to minister to the church at Thessalonica, who, by the way, were a group of people that loved the preaching of the Word of God. But they were not being sacrificial in their giving. It's also a reminder to us that there are a lot of churches, good churches out there, that are not necessarily meeting the need when it comes to financial giving. I want our church to be the right kind of church. I want our church to be balanced in that respect. I don't want us to just to be the kind of church that loves to get together and have a good meeting. I also want us to be the kind of church that's in tune with and, and keenly aware of the needs of our missionaries, the needs of the men of God that come and minister to us, the needs in our community, people that are keenly aware of how God may use us in that capacity. So we see his explanation here. He says, listen, I'm not speaking in respect of want. God is meeting my needs. But the fact is, when you're serving the Lord and when you're a missionary like Paul was, very often God has to do it in miraculous ways because he cannot do it in ministerial ways. It's a sad indictment. But God help you and I to never be that way. 
Uh, God help you and I to always be liberal in our giving under the work of the Lord, that God might use us in that, that capacity. Notice not only his explanation, notice his exhortation. Verse number 17. He says, not because I desire a gift. He says, I'm not poor mouthing. I'm not complaining. I'm not saying this because I want somebody to give money to me. But he says, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Paul desired spiritual reward and blessing for them. And he understood that if they would be used of the Lord in that capacity, that they would receive a reward far better than any gold or or copper coins or silver coins that they may send his way. That they were making an investment upon eternity. Verse number 18, notice the exultation in the tone of his voice. He says, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. An odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Notice his delight in their gift. He says, I've got everything I need. You've met my need. Oh, listen, hey, what a, what a grateful, gracious, thankful heart uh, is experienced in a believer whenever God uses another believer to meet the need in their life. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm not saying this so that you'll give me more money. i got more than I could need now. Your gift has been well received. But notice his description of their gift. I think this is beautiful. He says, the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell... A sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, there were five Levitical sacrifices, basically, and there were variations on these for particular circumstances. There were basically five categories of sacrifices. Uh, and these, these sacrifices were split into two uh, categories further. There were sin sacrifices, and then there were sweet-smelling sacrifices. The two sin sacrifices was the sin offering uh, and and also the uh, trespass offering. These were offerings that would be given if a person had sinned against God. But then there were the sweet savor offerings. This would have been the burnt offering and the uh, meat offering. uh, And then and now it's escaping me the third one, the peace offering. Uh, These three sacrifices were sweet savor offerings. And these were given not because a person had sinned against God, but they were they were acts of worship. They were expressions of gratitude. Towards the God of Israel. And Paul connects. Paul basically says (laughs) that grace-filled giving unto the Lord is the New Testament equivalent of a sweet savor offering. Something we do not because we have to, but because we get to. Something we do not because we're required, but it's something that we do because we're privileged to get to. And just as God would receive those offerings in the Old Testament and they delighted his heart and they were a sweet smell. One of the things I love about wintertime is the smells. There are smells in my heart and in my mind and in my history, my experience, associated with the wintertime months. This goes all the way, by the way, back to childhood. I mean, I can still smell the chicken and dumplings that Mama would make when it would get cold uh, and soups that she would make. And I, I still can smell wood burning on a fireplace or the wood burning in a wood burning stove. There are just certain smells associated with it. And it's only gotten better since I've gotten married. Uh, Leah cooks all kinds of stuff and there's I can smell chef beans cooking five, six hours in a pot with, with fat back or with bacon or salt pork and, and, and uh, cornbread coming out of the oven. I can smell fresh made bread that she makes and I'm getting hungry. I'm going to have to cut it short if I keep this up. But all those smells are associated. And I can, I, when I walk through the door, uh, our, our, our house is a basement rancher, and so our garage is, is downstairs. Uh, and she's been cooking. When I walk through the door, I can smell it. It's, it's come through the air conditioning system. And immediately my spirits are lifted. My heart sings. I know there's a good meal waiting for me upstairs. 
it delights me when those sweet smells enter, enter my, my sensory glands, you know. And uh, that's how God is about grace-filled giving. It delights His heart. And so Paul says the giving, the gift that they had given, not only did it meet a need, but it blessed God's heart. Notice verse number 19. Uh, and this is very familiar, very, uh, very well-acquainted passage of Scripture. He says, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I love that word, according. I'll tell you a, uh, an illustration that I was told, an anecdote years ago. I read it in a book. I think this came from J. Vernon McGee. I can't remember. Uh, but he told the, whoever it was, told the illustration of two men that were out on a golf course. And uh, they each had caddies that were carrying their clubs for them. More common back in those days than today. We've got all these golf carts. And, uh, uh, but these caddies had, had worked all day, and it's hot, they're sweaty. They'd lugged these, these clubs all around, up and down the hills of this golf course. And they came to the 18th hole, and it was time to part ways. And that's, if you're a golfer and, and you've golfed with a, with a caddy, you know that's kind of the appropriate time to leave a tip. If you're going to tip that caddy. And both these men were vastly rich. I'm, I'm talking about multi-multi-millionaires, had more money than they knew what to do with. One of them pulled out a $5 bill and gave it to that caddy. He said, thank you, I appreciate you taking care of us today. And that other uh, rich man looked at that other guy kind of a little, you know, side, side uh, long view, and he pulled a $100 bill out of his wallet and gave to his caddy. And uh, Dr. McGee, or whoever it was that told the illustration, he said, you know what the difference to those two men, their tips was, one of them gave out of his riches. The other gave according to his riches. One of them, that $5 bill came out of his wallet just as sure as that $100 bill came out of the other man's wallet. But he wasn't giving according to his riches. He was giving out of it. God meets our need according to his riches. But notice what kind of riches they are. They're riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Everything God does, he does for his own glory. And the reason he meets our needs is not for our goods, it's not for our wealth, but it's for his glory. So he always meets our needs in accordance with what derives the most glory to himself. There's a lot of applications, there's a lot of interesting things we could say about it. But let me just simply make this note and move on for time's sake. That God has the ability to meet any need that you have. And he will meet true needs in our lives. But he will do it in such a time and in such a way as provides him the maximum amount of glory. We see in this passage the expectation of their temporal gain, but also of God's eternal glory. And Paul sort of breaks forth in a doxology of gratitude. He says, now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what it's all about. Our poverty, our prosperity, our wealth, our want, our abounding, our abasing, our being full, our being hungry, is all about God receiving glory. It's not limited by His, by His means. It's not limited by His methods. It is limited and dictated only and singly by what brings Him the most glory. Notice these parting notes. I'm not even going to say a lot really about them, uh, but I'll just mention them in closing. Look at verse 21. Paul says, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We see two ending notes here. One is a note of greetings. There are greetings from the apostle. 
He says, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. He wanted them to know they were on his heart. They were on his mind. They were in his prayers. And he wanted them to give a warm welcome on his behalf to every saint. I love that, by the way. Uh, it would have been a mixed multitude there at Philippi. He says, just treat every one of them the same. Give every one of them the same hug, the same handshake from me, because I love every one of them the same. Not only from the apostle, but notice from the assembly. He, he mentions his circle of friends. He says, the brethren which are with me greet you. God had given Paul like-minded people, brethren, people that could support him and encourage him, even in that Roman prison. And his, his tone, his song, his tome of gratitude... Uh, includes gratitude for the friends that God has given him. We ought to be grateful for good, godly friends. Not only that, but notice his circle of fellowship. He says, all the saints salute you. He's talking, and this is the way the commentator has it, I like this, the church at Nero's Rome. Even in that place of pagan worship, there were God's people serving the Lord. Living for God. And he says there's like-minded people, even here in the heartbeat of modern civilization, when he was writing it. He says, even in this place of idolatrous worship, even in this place of of secular, humanistic worship of of the Caesar, even in in a place of Rome's violence and and a, a place of Rome's decadence, there's God's people there. Not only the church at Nero's Rome, but he even gets a little closer. He says, the Christians in Nero's home salute you. I love that. Paul had been busy at work. He says, chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. Paul had been winning Roman officials to the Lord. And you know what I love? I believe he's being sincere when he says this. He says, all these folks want to tell you how much they love and appreciate you. But he says, you know who wants to say it most of all? The people that have been won to Christ in Nero's household. The people that were the most wicked, the people that were most unreachable, are the people that have the deepest affection and gratitude for the gift that you've given to me. Then he ends with this final word, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Grace. You remember that this little book, it it opened with grace. Verse number 2 of chapter 1, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the very last verse says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It was a a book, a letter, a, a, a correspondence of the grace of God from beginning to end. But notice also who it's the grace of. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You want to know why the book of Philippians is a book written from the prisoner's pen? But it's not a book written of complaining and grumbling and misery and and dissatisfaction and discontentment. Instead, it is a letter that is woven throughout with words like joy and contentment and rejoicing and fruitfulness and faithfulness. It's because of that title, that name, that person, Jesus Christ. The name of Christ appears in some fashion or another more than 40 times in this short book. You know, that averages out. To about once every two or three verses. You know why Paul was content? Because he couldn't walk two or three verses without talking about Jesus Christ. You know what will make us satisfied in our lives? You know what will make us content? If we make our lives, be it in the palace or the prison, be it in prosperity or poverty, if we make our life about Jesus Christ, we'll find the secret to contentment and joy that Paul experienced.